It's really stepping into the shoes of your customers and understanding what are their desired outcomes. It's not about this one thing they buy, it's what is it that it allows them to do. My name is Darren Smith and you're listening to Digital Surfing. Our guest this week is Maya Bofarak, who is the growth CMO consultant at Marketing Cube. She spent over 15 years in tech and in marketing, and she has built countless business growth plans. She is passionate about working with ambitious entrepreneurs and purpose-driven CEOs to deliver truly sustainable growth. Outside of work, she's an avid landscape and night photographer, as well as a world explorer. Maya is proud to be multicultural and multilingual, having had the pleasure of living and working in Moscow, Paris, Amsterdam, New York City, San Francisco, and London. In today's podcast, what we are covering is how you can use the jobs to be done model in working out marketing and brand strategy, why you should be investing in brand, especially in economic times of fear, and then also her successes that we've seen at pharmacy to you And then lastly, we cover the concept of a data vault, which really is the answer to privacy in today's privacy-obsessed world. Welcome, Maya, to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Darren. Let's get started with who Maya is. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get there? I'm an eclectic mix of a French-Lebanese father and a Russian mother, which uh, made me uh, travel a fair bit in my life, which I love. They're also both engineers, so I guess it was just, you know, the right path. And I never became an engineer, however, but ended up surrounded by all of them in the tech industry, which I love. So that's kind of how it all played up, I guess. And my very first step into tech was when Cisco gave me a spot on their graduate program. So um, I first learned how the internet worked before I actually got into uh, the nitty gritty of it with Google. So one of my favorite questions to ask when we're speaking to people that are in marketing and brand is you've just mentioned your background. You've got like different nationalities from parents. You've traveled a fair amount. I'm like, is that a really important factor when you're doing marketing and brand development because you can kind of empathize with different cultures and understand people more? You know, one of the advices I kind of give people early on when they say I want to work in marketing, I'd say, well, then don't go into a marketing degree, go into a psychology degree. (laughs) Because actually everything has to do with the way we buy, how we think about things, the reason we do something. It's not really the it. The it is a means to an end that usually has much bigger powers, right? (laughs) And so... I do think that being able to empathize, step into people's shoes, but really go deep onto the reasons they're taking specific actions or what the triggers are, is super important to be successful in marketing and engaging with people, influencing people. And so if I had to redo, I think I would go into a psychology degree as opposed to a business degree or a marketing degree. I I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think people kind of almost fall in love with the marketing tactics and channels and base their strategy on that as opposed to actually really understanding the people and how they buy. Channels come last, I usually say, when (laughs) that conversation starts a bit too early. (laughs) So talking about branding and the reasons why people do things, you've got an opinion on companies should be investing in branding and brand earlier on and also in especially when there's kind of economic fear consumer fear what is that insight about humans that makes you think that companies should invest 
at that time? I think there's, there's two sides to it. One is people forget that customer retention comes from many different levels and brand is also a retention factor. And so therefore, you know, anything you invest in your brand does contribute to that, right? It's your retention is not only the emails you send reminding them to buy with you or except, you know, all of those more commercial tactics that we do feel allegiance to brands. And even if we might be an unfrequent buyer with a specific brand or a product, every time we do this very specific thing, even if it's rare, we end up going there. Right. And so so that becomes really important. And businesses don't tend to think in that way from the get go. Right. And so from day one, by investing on brand, you're building up your retention of that base that you're building. Right. And I think that becomes really important because you might have convinced them to buy once, but you haven't created the emotional connection with them. You haven't really shown what you stand for. And they're like, yeah, but this one thing was cool. But that relationship stayed very transactional. The other thing I say to even very early businesses, and again, just to qualify what branding means, it's not your logo and your colors. Those are really nice and they're lovely ways of standing out in the world and putting your best foot forward. But when I talk about branding, I talk about what you stand for, what kind of solutions you bring to the world, what are your opinions about the world that might be controversial or innovative, but that people can buy into. And so if you can start articulating that and really using that umbrella around everything you're doing, you're not just selling this, you're selling this for a greater good, a possible further benefit around it. And people can really buy into that. And so I think that's where we understand people's psychology and love the way Scott Galloway puts it in his books, right? Like how Google is your intellect and things like that. How those different brands connect to your primal emotions and needs as a human being then you can really do that better. And I usually, I call brand an amplifier to everything businesses do. And so we're not talking about a small startup started doing Nike-like ads and having to have that kind of budget source thing. It wouldn't even work for them anyway. Mm. It's just really putting some time in writing your narrative, explaining to people why you're in this and bringing that across everything you do and also trying to judge a bit the choices you make in your marketing, your comms, your product development of how it relates back to that intentions of you in the world. And it helps you course correct, but before anything and we touched on it at the beginning so i'm not going to go much deeper into that it's really stepping into the shoes of your customers and understanding what are their desired outcomes it's not about this one thing they buy it's what is it that it allows them to do and so, so really stepping in that to understand it and building the right brand the right message and all that comes with it okay and, and in particular you had said to me before that this is really important when there's kind of economic uncertainty consumer fear why in particular at that point is the brand so important? You know, I feel like the de facto actions often becomes like slash the prices, do this, do that, like some kind of very commercial, short-sighted type of behaviors, slightly in the panic, slightly in how we're going to make our numbers versus doubling down in maybe we're this much more expensive, but you know, you're not just buying it for the price, you're buying it for everything that it comes with. I think becomes really important. And so I'm not saying that slashing a price or reducing pricing or something might not be one of the tactics you might want to employ, but not at the detriment of your brand and what you stand for. And suddenly people thinking you're a discount brand, basically, or you're a discount type of business, I guess. 
Yeah. So once you've got your brand narrative and your story and your purpose and everything, everything built out, like going back to what we were saying earlier about then you decide on your channels and tactics. But like, I feel like a lot of companies, especially larger companies, when they say, okay, we need to develop brand, they go, well, okay, let's go and sponsor the cricket team or they're going to try and associate their brand to some other brand. And that's obviously highly expensive. And I'm not even sure it's effective. I'm like, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, brand partnerships and coordination make sense if they make sense in the customer buying journey, right? And I think that's the piece we haven't covered yet. It's the step of stepping into your customer's shoes and saying, what is it that they're trying to accomplish that my product could contribute towards? But also, what is their natural path to discovering the problem they have, feeling the pain enough to actually start taking action to trying to fix for it, etc. And so if they particularly feel that pain when they're watching football, then wonderful. That sounds like a great place to be. And I guess that's what the Coca-Cola is thinking, you know, or Heineken is thinking, you know, they're sitting for hours there with their mates and they're going to drink. So I'd like to make sure they think of buying a Heineken. It so happens that in most of those places, they have already secured a deal with the venue and there's no other beers than Heineken anyway. But granted, maybe it's an element of reinforcement to push them to go and ask for a Heineken at the bar. But that's really your customer pathway, their decision-making process and finding them. And so the example I've been using recently is blue lens glasses, right? Like to help you with screen time. It's a relatively new product. People might know about it or not. The volume of searches for blue lens glasses are only so big and anyone who has them is going to try to compete. However, what really blue lens glasses allow people to do is to release their sore eyes or spend more hours in front of the laptop without feeling sick, right? So if you can go back up into the journey of your customer of how they formulated, how what they think about those until, then you can start as a blue lens glasses producer, say goodbye to sore eyes, here's a few tips and include the fact that beyond eye drops, maybe a, a, a pair of glasses would help. So, so that's really understanding that and finding your customers in their state of mind within the different steps of their journey to be able to answer the questions they have right now. Because what they're Googling is, I have sore eyes, I spend too much time in front of my laptop, what can I do? A much smaller amount of people already know about the glasses and are ready to buy. And also a bunch, you'll be able to convince some people that wouldn't have even considered a pair of glasses at that point as a possible solution for them that they can evaluate against other things that they might choose to consider. I love that you've just given me a segue there talking about eye drops into another section that I want to talk about, which is a part of your career before at uh, pharmacy to you and the successes that you had over there. Do you, do you want to just kind of give a high level of what you managed to achieve there? Of course. So pharmacy to you is an online pharmacy in the UK and started many moons ago as just an online retailer for over-the-counter products. And we basically came in through the investors with two of my business partners and we're asked to really kind of take this business to next level. 
We've done that by merging pharmacy to you and another business we were in and really creating, you know, building on what that business has done wonderfully well, which was building on a partnership with the NHS and building the back end that allows for everything to flow digitally between patients and doctors and really created the whole front end experience for customers, establishing the first century advantage, if you like, in that sense for online repeat prescriptions within the NHS in the UK. And so we've built it to be the largest online pharmacy in the UK and the fastest growing pharmacy dot in the country, as in against incubators and all of the big players. I mean, it was a freeling journey. It's a very purpose-driven business. It costs the NHS about 15% less to fulfill medication through pharmacy to you than it does through their other channels, wider distribution networks and pharmacies or mobs and pops pharmacies. And it obviously, you know, solves for a real problem of people not having to do the admin of repeating their prescription from contacting the doctor to going to the pharmacy to coming back because they don't have stock. All of that is taken care of for them with all the amenities, if you like, that we're used to. We're reminded to order. We're told if something is not right. We're given an opportunity to track our order and just ongoing service. So yeah, so it was, you know, five really exciting years of building something from scratch. And we then sold the business to a private equity in the process. So yeah, that was my pharmacy to you journey. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but what I'm hearing you say is that a lot of the success in this brand was about the services that you offered, like the repeat prescription management and and how that came about and not the brand communication and so on, where a lot of people will assume that as a marketer, as a brand developer, you are coming up with stories and ads and blogs and social content and that type of thing. But am I right in saying that this success has largely got to do with actually one of the other P's in the marketing mix? Product. Yeah, product. Listen, you're totally right. So, so my remit was slightly larger than kind of standard TMO in the sense that I've developed the front-end experience for the consumer because there, there was none at that point. We've built it or rebuilt it from scratch, created the app experience and all that. So I had the step into the front-end experience and, and, and all of that. And I had full PL accountability as in all the way to marketing contributions. So I needed to make sure that I was sending people to a place they wanted to go and where they'll have a good experience and they will remain. But yes, absolutely. And it's a conversation I have with a lot of the startups I work with today of going like, are you sending your traffic to a sieve and your conversion rate is not airtight or as good as it could be at this point? Is your product delivering to the needs of your customers and is it intuitive enough and has no major hurdles that prevent people to staying on? Are you educating them in the right way once they start using your product? And that is essential. And I think any good CMO usually would say that to their teams, right? And help because otherwise you're really putting marketing money down the drain that is not going to produce the results it could, or at least will cost you way more than it should if you had good conversion rate on your funnels and the right product. So absolutely, my focus initially was heavily onto what is the proposition? What would be the best experience? Choosing the right language within the UX to drive people because it was a completely new experience. There was no comparisons to how you do that online, right? And things like that. So 100% around that. However, like any new vertical, new proposition, you definitely have a major marketing and brand and awareness challenge. There's this few elements that come in place. First of all, no one's looking for you 
Online prescriptions don't exist. No one is looking for you. And so thinking about that pathway, about the customer journey that we talked about a second ago, you kind of need to go and really understand through customers' interviews your own experience of using the NHS and others, where do you feel the pain most and how to interact with people in that relevant moment. And so for Pharmacy to You, one of our best performing locations ever were actually at GP surgeries on their walls because you're sitting there waiting again or waiting for the receptionist to talk to you and maybe allow you to repeat without seeing the doctor and a whole bunch of things like that. So we, we advertised all over there, for example, as one of those really poignant points where they are receptive to such a message. But if no one's looking for you, then you need to really figure out how you build that awareness and trust with people who are most in need of such a service. So then some people are very remote and actually live very far from pharmacies in the UK. And so how do you get to those people first that feel the pain the more? Like, and so and so, oh, a bunch of people are caring for family. And actually, if the meds could be delivered to the house of that family instead of them having to be the courier, that would be supervision. And really going to the nitty gritty of that audience and really starting with those who feel the pain the most or the early adopters, as they call them in tech almost, right? And build from there. Obviously, this is in health. This is linked to the NHS. Trust is really important. So building trust, explaining why you're reliable through social proof in other ways Again, super important that journey. And at Pharmacy to You, we definitely did a lot of mass media kind of activities such as TV and others, both to get to the right audiences, to tell you know our story, but mostly in building trust and explaining what is this new proposition they never heard about that would make a difference in their lives. I know you're a massive fan of the Jobs to be Done framework, and I want to talk about that in just a second. But just before I go on to that, I'm like the reason I bring that up is just because a lot of this is thinking about what is it that I need to communicate to this particular persona in this particular need state and so on. But before we move off pharmacy to you, you mentioned being responsible for that kind of building the whole experience. Was there a particular tech stack that you selected or worked on? Was it like one of the regulars like Magento or something like that? How, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, so I had nothing to do with the back end, to be very clear. We had a wonderful technology team that were also the, the genius behind doing all the connections with the NHS and making it work. I really was just kind of surfacing all that experience in the right way in the front end. So it was just building an app, building the right front end experience and working mostly with UX designers, UX copywriters, just mapping up the steps and finding the right way to reassure people through the process and also ticking all the compliance boxes that we needed to tick because we are a healthcare provider and a pharmacy, right? So in the health space and we had a license to the NHS and we need to subscribe to their rules. So I wouldn't give you a tech stack per se for those things, I'm afraid. <laughs> it seems like you took the right approach in that it was based on user requirements, customer experience. Yeah, that was a decision with them based on what we're trying to build. All right, so let's go back to that jobs to be done. I mean, like you're already speaking about some really interesting things there about the messaging and the social yeah. proof and that type of thing. So before we go into how you use it, for those of the listeners today that don't know 
the jobs to be done framework. Do you want to just give us a high level overview of what that is? The jobs to be done framework was developed by Clayton Christensen a while back as an innovation framework, right? Like figuring out what people need more of or differently, etc. So that was more of a almost a product technology tool. And in recent years, it's been purposed because it has a lot of value also more on the marketing comms standpoint. And as we mentioned, product marketing can't really double themselves, right? They come together. So it's been more used in that also for defining your marketing and go-to-market and understanding your audience. At the core of it, what the Jobs to be Done framework says is that your customers are hiring your product to do a job for them. They don't care for your product. They really care for what they're trying to do. And so there's um, this uh, lovely representation that's used sometimes for it as saying, for those who used to play Super Mario, there's like normal Mario, and then there's some kind of power flower, and he wants a power flower because he'll become Super Mario. And so that's really, this is your customer, you're the flower, what is it that you're going to do that will make them Super Mario? And so once you understand that, really, and again, in the simplest possible way, we're using our blue lens glasses examples from earlier. I don't want your glasses. And ideally, actually, maybe I don't want to be wearing glasses. But if that definitely will resolve my sore eye problem and will allow me to do my 10 hours of work with no discomfort, then wonderful. And so that's really the principle of it. And what the framework helps you to do is to identify the desired outcomes of your audience but also understanding anxieties they might have around trying something new and the reassurances they might need in the process. And the jobs to be done framework helps you articulate those statements of jobs that customers are trying to put forward. The other example I tend to use to explain, you know, it's it's, it's not what it seems most of the time what they're buying is. There's this famous saying of like, you're not buying a drill, you're buying a hole in the wall. And I was like, yeah, that's totally true. But I take it further and the jobs to be done framework invites you to take it further because you're not buying a drill. You're buying a hole in the wall to secure a heavy mirror on so that it doesn't injure your kids running around it. We went from drill to the safety of kids because really you're not buying the drill or the hole. Whatever tells you this will ensure this mirror will never fall on your kids, even if they run around like maniacs around it, like that's what you're buying. And so suddenly your competition is not just other drill providers, it's a handyman, it's your father-in-law who's amazing at DIY, it's do not buy the mirror because no one can guarantee that. And so that's very much, you know, definitely something that I use with all of my clients, really. One, to test their understanding of their audience or to help them refine. So I suppose that was going to be my next question. You first need to know the personas, the audience that you're going after in order to understand the jobs at each different buying stage. You know, if somebody knows that they definitely want a drill, they might be, uh, the job to be done is to convince them that you've got a, a better drill than the competitor. But if it's somebody that doesn't even know if they want a handyman or a drill, it's a completely different job, right? So that's your job as the marketer, as opposed to here, the job is what they're trying to accomplish. So it doesn't matter if they're higher up the funnel or further down the funnel in their research process and deciding what they're going to buy. Their job all along was, I need to make sure this mirror is so safe that it's safe to have my kids running around. And they might be in that earlier stage or later stage. By going through the process of interviewing prospects or people that might be interested by your product, you learn about what jobs that product could deliver to them. 
And so we start thinking less about audiences and personas and more what is it that they're trying to buy. And I think there's this lovely example where they put forward Prince Charles in the UK and then Ozzy Osbourne. They're born in the same year. They're both rich. And so technically they're the same persona, but I think it's pretty fair to say that what Charles is after and what Ozzy Osbourne is after is very different. And so that's what really the Jobs to be Done framework invites you to do. Then maybe they both need their next pair of glasses and that's wonderful. And then you can maybe resolve to that, right? Or they all love to read and would like to, but they're not the same persona by no means, despite falling in the right persona. So you mentioned the funnel there. If you've got limited budget, if you're a startup and you want to capture the greatest amount of demand, do you go and focus on, for example, there's a lot more people searching for handyman than drill? Or do you go down and just focus on what you do in the beginning? Do you have a, a suggestion on that? Early stage startups that have even just a business idea or a product idea or anything like that, the first thing to do is enroll all your friends and families, talk to people in cafes, outside supermarkets, whatever you need to do to try to understand what your product might help them to do. Because that's very much the beginning of all of that. You will be able to like figure out the rest. Like what kind of space is your product in, right? Do you think that is for engineers? Find all the engineers in, that you know or can find, talk to them and ask about would they love using your product because people tend to say yes, right? Don't sell your idea. Just ask them about, have you ever considered this? Where do you go when you're thinking about that space? You know, I worked for a business who is an API, they facilitate API management saying, what is your greatest pains when it comes to API management? What works for you? What doesn't? Have you considered changing? And really understand the whole of that journey that might lead them at choosing something and ask them about how they ended up choosing whatever tool they're using today, whatever hack they're using today, and have never bought anything to resolve it. I think that then helps you understand the problem, be able to articulate your messaging in a way that it will be well-received and people really understand how that reflects on what they're trying to do. To then, because you know where they go, you go and find them there through those channels as well. So it's really not neither the persona nor the channel. It's really that, you know, customer understanding and process that they would do naturally that you need to fit into. I think I could talk to you for a full hour just on positioning and targeting, understanding those jobs to be done. But you've got a huge amount of experience across vast areas of brand and marketing. And so as we get towards the end, I'm quite interested in your ideas around the future. And you've kind of spoke to me previously about the term data vault. And that's something that you're thinking about in terms of digital CRM and so on. And privacy is such a big thing at the moment. So like, what is this data vault future that you have in mind? So you know, one of my clients is in privacy. It's a, it's a topic really important to me because obviously, you know, as a marketer, it should be important to you because you're dealing with so much customer data. And then obviously in health tech, there's another layer to that. But also as a, just in my everyday life, one of my biggest pet peeves is despite the PayPal's and the autofills and the Google wallets and whatever, the number of times I have to write my home address for a delivery or my phone number 
or provide someone access to some medical files that I need to like scramble around places to give, etc. And I'm like, well, if I can give someone a link to my folder for that client with everything I've ever done for them, why can't I give them a link to my home address or a link to this or a link to that? And so the idea of the vault actually got formulated when I heard Tim Berners-Lee at the Web Summit last year. And he's basic, his new business is basically that. He you know, jokingly says that he hasn't finished the internet and he needs to build this new thing. And really what he was describing was my aha moment of saying like, okay, that's how it needs to be done realistically. But basically he was talking about a vault where you would hold all of your data and you would have the ability to open a door permanently or temporarily on a certain set of information. I assume some kind of massive API connection to the rest of the world where you'll be like, thanks very much, eShop, opening my vault, get access to all the information you need to deliver to me and serve me in the right way, including my shoe size, my this, my that, so you can customize my experience with you and all of that. And I might open that forever because I shop here every week or for now and then close it off again. And then I might open my medical record vault to a hospital as I show up in an emergency or leave it open for my ongoing doctor that I would like to have access constantly. So so I felt that for me, that would be just like such progress, both from a privacy, because it's not me asking someone to delete my data. It's me stopping giving them access to my data. And that feels like just such a much more effective and safe way of doing things. I absolutely love what you just said at the end there, because me personally, at the moment, I accept all cookies because I want to have a more personalized experience. And I understand the dangers with that, but you know the way that you articulated now that I could actually end that a lot more easier than what it currently is. I think that kind of the crux of the privacy issue, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So to end off for today, I want to ask you, what piece of advice would you have given yourself at the beginning of your career if you were to do that all again? So we touch on one part of it, which is please go study psychology if you're interested in marketing and influencing people and selling and things like that. The other one, if I look at my own journey in that space, I think I was extremely impatient. I think the advice I'll give is like, just slow down. You know, there's plenty ahead. Enjoy really the moment. You'll get there also. There's no timelines. No one's really putting timelines on things like that. But also most importantly, if a job doesn't feel right, just leave and move on. It doesn't get better with time. There's a reason to kind of go through this pain. You know, just don't be afraid to move on and move on fast. And in the same vein, surround yourself by people you respect that you feel you can learn from. And again, if you feel that this is not happening in the environment you are now, really quickly and proactively make a change. And then finally, I think definitely worked for me and hopefully will serve other like really, really encouraging people to have as many diverse experiences as they can at the beginning of their career, because you actually don't know what you really naturally excel at. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about minimizing the inconvenience of what you're not that great at is really, really doubling down on what you're naturally great at. And you can, therefore, you enjoy and can, you know, really excel at by learning further. So those would be some of the things I would share. Oh, that's really, really good feedback there. And certainly, I'm like, if I look at myself, there are times where I should have just finished things off way sooner rather than sticking around. I got got myself into such a bad space a few times 
being angry with the people around me, but it was actually just not the right place. And so if I'd only just left sooner instead of having to go through that, it would have been so much better. And I also agree with that element of being diverse. You know, like me personally, I started as a developer before I went into marketing, before I started my own business, you know, so would have never known that if you weren't open to those diverse kind of experiences, a really good input. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, everything people are too afraid to be classified as a quitter. They kind of go into some competition with themselves. I'm going to prove them wrong, you know, things like that. And while a little bit of that can be constructive, I think it only goes so far. You just really need to find the right environment for you that feels more organically right as opposed to a constant fight or battle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us today on Digital Surfing. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a really interesting interview. And I think we should schedule some time in the future to go deeper into that jobs to be done framework. Sure. I'd love to. Thanks for having me.